Welcome to Desert City Church's podcast. Thanks for listening in. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We are a new church serving neighborhoods on the edge of North Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona. Our sermons are ongoing conversations around a sacred text or scripture in which we find the story of Jesus. We hope they inspire you to love God and others more. If we can serve you in any way or answer any questions about our community, please don't hesitate to ask. You can find out more information at DesertCityChurch.com. So before we get started, I just wanted to say it's nice and cool outside, like wonderful outside. Um, and for some reason, it's like really hot inside. So if you are hot and uncomfortable, I'm so sorry. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what the temp is in this uh, room. And uh, so I'll try to be quick uh, with this sermon. Probably not as quick as last week. That was great, right? But um, There's a man who got onto an airplane and uh, boarded a flight from Los Angeles. Uh, and it was a, a cross-country flight to New York. Uh, but his destination was Dallas, and the flight had like a layover in Dallas. It was just going to touch, touch down, drop some people off, and then go on to New York. And it was the red eye. And so the man had a big meeting uh, the next day, and he gets on the flight around midnight. And he goes to the flight attendant, and he says, it's really important that uh, I'm going I'm to fall asleep, and I'm a, I'm a really heavy sleeper. If, if you can wake me up when we get to Dallas, make sure I get off the flight. I just don't want to sleep through it and end up in New York. That'd be terrible. And the flight attendant's like, oh, yeah, sure. And he's like, make sure you wake me up, though. I'm a heavy sleeper. And the flight attendant goes, okay, okay. So the man puts his headphones on, falls asleep, flies through the night. Wakes up, looks out, and sees the New York City skyline. And is like, what? Like, furious. Absolutely furious. Sleeps through the, the layover. So he sees the flight attendant, gets up, and goes to him, angry, and demands an explanation. Flight attendant just kind of looks at him with his eyes wide open and grunts, yeah, grunts response. The man says, this, this is, I have meetings today. You guys are going to pay for this. Storms off the flight, just furious. One of the other flight attendants sees him and goes, man, that, that guy was angry. And the flight attendant, the flight attendant says, you think he was mad? You should have seen the guy that I made get off the plane in Dallas. <laughs> Might be too early for an airplane joke. Uh, but we're, we're talking today about anger. And we, we started this series where we're kind of looking at like different emotions. The last few weeks we've been talking about different emotions. And I want to talk about three kinds of anger today. But I would say that we live in kind of this hyper-tense culture right now, right? Like we see all the YouTube videos of what's, like what's happening on airplanes right now. We live in an angry culture. And, uh, and I want to talk about what Scripture has to say about anger. Because Scripture has a lot to say about this topic of anger. And it's this emotion that we all feel. Um, and it's an emotion that's, that's very natural for us to feel. And if we look through scripture, uh, as we've been doing, we've been kind of looking at this, this book of Lamentations. And Lamentations is a very emotional book. And for God's people, this is uh, a book that is full of, of poems and prayers and songs that help people just process going through some of life's most difficult experiences and emotions. And when it comes to anger, uh, it's a book that has a lot of anger. Anger is uh, try, it's described in many different ways throughout the Old and New Testament. In Hebrew, there's over 10 kind of like root words that are trying to describe what anger is. Um, one, of, one of the kind of the, the metaphors it uses is like nostrils, the nostrils of God. They, they flare. 
Um, and so, uh, like, 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 when you think of how God is, is slow to anger, it literally means that God has, a, like, a long nose. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to use all of these different metaphors to describe what this emotion is. Jesus talks about anger. He talks about uh, those who have anger in their heart towards their brother are in danger of, of, of something much worse happening. The Apostle Paul talks about anger. He, talks, he, he lumps it in with this list of just of terrible evils that we should rid ourselves of. Um, but anger is something that is, we, we, all of us experience it. Anger is something that is actually kind of very natural. And I want to look at today at these three different types of anger that I think are prevalent in our world. And I want to start in Lamentations. And so if you have uh, your Bibles, you can open to Lamentations chapter 2, verse 1. It's on the screen behind me. Now just follow along what this has to say. Remember, these are, are songs, these are poems, trying to describe, uh, describe something that uh, maybe is indescribable. Lamentations 2.1 says, How the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his foot still in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. And in his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, he has cut off every horn of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. This topic of anger shows up in Lamentations, and what we find is that God is angry in this passage. There is an anger that is God's anger. And like when we hear that, that that creates all sorts of emotions within us. There's some of us that are like, I don't even want to think about God's anger. And when we think about like the church's role in the world, so many people are disenfranchised because they talk about kind of this angry God. Then other people are like obsessed with God's anger. And they're like, people need to die. Let's talk about God's anger. But, it, but like when we, when we consider like what's happening here in this passage, there's this, this song that's being sung about this experience and people are trying to describe what God's up to in this world. There's no getting around this idea that they talk about, this anger that is divine. And when we consider the circumstances of this, we think about kind of what's happening in Lamentations, what, what we see in the context of, of this culture is that the people of, of Israel have been invaded by this foreign power. Babylon. The Babylonians have come in sometime around the 6th century B.C. And the Babylonians have come in and they've destroyed everything. They've destroyed the people of God's home. They've exiled them. They've, they've kidnapped them. The whole life has just crumbled. And they're left kind of wondering, like, what just happened? Why would this happen? And we talked about how Lamentations actually follows the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is like this prophet who is looking around and saying to, to the people, listen, th th this isn't good. The way that we're acting, the way, like, this isn't good. And, and, and something bad can happen. And we think, well, what, what is it that wasn't good? And you start to read the context of, of God's people. 
And you start to find that, that the things that they do that, that anger God are very unjust. They start to turn to other gods. There's this god named Molech. Molech was this primitive pagan god who required the first, your firstborn to be sacrificed to appease him. And this god Molech was, was known for, for blessing abundantly people if you allowed your firstborn son to be sacrificed. And you find like the people of God start to kind of buy into this hope of blessing from Molech, and they do these terrible things to their children. You find the people of God who start to enslave others around them as they grow to power and might. And it's, it's like ironic because we talked last week about how the people of God were enslaved in Egypt. And for 400 years they cried out, God, save us from these people who are enslaving us. And now they find themselves in power and they're using their power to treat people like property. And you start to see some of these things that they do that just destroys life around them and corrupts their culture. And instead of, instead of being this, 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 this priestly people that represent God on earth, uh, they, they're, they're becoming the, the, these people that are just bringing about destruction. And the prophet Jeremiah is saying, look out, this isn't good. We were called to be a certain kind of people here and now, and we're not living up to it. And not only does, does God get angry at that certain things that are oppressive and unjust in this world, but now as God's people who should know better, we're participating in those things as well. And when we consider like the anger of God, like, like, like it's, we have to be reminded that this is, this is a God who is, is just, who looks out and he sees the cause of of the oppressed and the poor. And he's moved to action out of his righteousness. This is like a just anger that he acts upon. And because of how God's people are, are, are living, chasing after all of these things that are destructive to the people around him, the anger of God comes on them. Proverbs talks about different things that make God angry. There's a kind of this list says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, the Los Angeles Lakers. I think that's the Hebrew, I'm not sure. Feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. And we think about these things that make God angry, there are these things that disrupt life, disrupt community. People, when they, they treat others unjustly and unfairly. And so as we consider like, like this, this response in, in a strange way with, with, how, with how terrifying the anger could be, there's also something about it that's like, it is good news. There's this sovereignty of God that when he looks out at the world and he sees certain things that are just completely unjust, he's moved to action. And I think that's important when we even think about the, some of the brokenness in our world around us. When we look out and we see chemical attacks in Syria, and we see children suffering greatly, there's this hope that there's this God who sees these terrible acts and unjust just acts, and that he's at work somehow in this world. And sometimes we read these passages in the Old Testament kind of backwards, and then, but when we look and we see how God is looking at like the, disru- the, 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 the corruption of the world, and he's finally saying, I've had enough. 
we start to see like there's this anger that is used in God that is to set the world right. And if we consider that this first kind of anger is God's anger, what we find is that anger is divine. And we, we talk about God as he's unchanging, but there's this element that we understand about who he is and characteristically he interacts with this world. He's alive, he's engaged with what we're doing. There's a story of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus, the Son of God, the revelation of who God is in this world. There's a story that takes place in Mark chapter 3. And I don't think the, the words are behind me, but just kind of listen along. It says, in Mark chapter 3, another time he went, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. So there's this man with a shriveled hand. He's obviously suffering. He's in pain. And those who are the religious leaders are, are trying to figure out, is Jesus going to do something? Because they know Jesus' nature is to engage with someone who's suffering and to bring restoration and healing. But if he does it right here on the Sabbath, it actually like messes up with their religious law. And they want to know what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus asks him a question. He says, what do you think is lawful for to happen? To heal this man on the Sabbath or to not do anything? And the religious leaders just look at him. They don't say anything. And it says that Jesus is angry. He's furious at their lack of compassion for this man. That they would set their religious law in front of restoring this man's hand. There's an anger that we see in God. There's an anger that we see in Jesus for things in this world that are unjust. Anger is this divine force. So as we talk about these other two types of anger, there's this reminder that there's this anger that comes from God, but it's holy and just and fair. We think about ourselves as human beings. We talk about how we're made in the image of God. And we know that we all experience anger in different ways. The second type of anger, I would say, is that there's the human anger. Human anger. And I would say there's two types of human anger. The other day, I, uh, yesterday actually, my son Micah had a birthday party uh, over at Cracker Jack's. And it was from 4 to 7. And that's kind of a long party. Um, and I still had some work to do on the, this message and the sermon and was trying to get some studying in and trying to wrestle with this topic of anger. And so I, I go, I drop him off. I'm there for a little bit and decide I'm going to jet to go over to Starbucks. And to get to Starbucks, I'm kind of writing and researching my anger. And I was just sitting there thinking, like, man, I'm just not an angry person, man. This is like, I don't even know how to talk about this. I just don't get angry very often. And, like, God, what, what makes me angry? I don't know. And the whole time I'm, like, frustrated that I'm, you know, at, you know. So get done writing the message about anger. And I get in the car and just kind of have this conversation with God, like, I don't, things don't make me angry. And as I'm pulling out of the Kirillin parking lot, there's, I get to the stoplight, and a car comes through, and as I get ready to go, the car behind that car, who was behind me with the, law, the laws of the right-of-way, decides to pull out in front of me. And as I look, I see that the person driving this car is much, much younger than me, and his car is much more expensive than mine. <laughs> and so I was like, I almost run into him, 
And then I like lose it, like lose my mind, <laughs> honk, honk at them. And I have this tendency, like when I am in the car, if someone cuts me off, to follow you and honk at you for a long time. <laughs> and all of this is happening, and I'm, you know, driving through Kierland, honking, screaming, so upset. And I pull, then I pull out and go pick up my son, and I realize, like, what just happens? Like, I was just talking about, like, how things don't make me, and this is, like, this isn't the first time this has happened. And I was reminded, like, there's this anger that I feel that is, like, this unrighteous anger, and it's terrifying. And it comes out randomly in times that we would not expect, usually when Marcy's not in the car. (laughs) We think about, uh, I'm a big baseball fan, you're following baseball right now, there's this, there's this big kind of back and forth rivalry happening between the Boston Red Sox and the Baltimore Orioles. I don't know if you followed in the news at all, but uh, they're, they're playing this game of beanball, which means they keep hitting each other. And it's painful because those guys throw like 100 miles an hour. And it's kind of been escalating out of control where they're, they're throwing at each other's best players back and forth over the last couple weeks. Major League Baseball is trying to step in and stop them from letting them hit each other. These are grown men playing a game, throwing baseballs at each other. But it's interesting because there's this rivalry between these two teams and between these two cities that goes back like 100 years. They always talk about like Yankees-Red Sox, but this is a rivalry that's toxic. Back in like the late 1800s, in fact, this, this rivalry was present. And there was a there was a man named Teddy Foghorn Decker, what a great name for the late 1800s, who was playing on the Red Sox, who had a different name back then, and they were playing Baltimore up in Boston. And he slid into third base, and he took out the third baseman. The third baseman gets up, punches him in the face, knocks him over, this big brawl starts, bench is clear, big fight starts. Uh, finally, we were able to clear the team, but there were fans from Baltimore in the stands who started to fight with some of the Boston fans. Boston people are a little uptight, I've heard. Um, Start this fight. They try to continue the game, and the Baltimore fans end up lighting the bleachers on fire. Not only do they light the bleachers on fire, this huge gust of wind comes in, and the whole place goes up. The whole place. I mean, the, the stands, everything catches on fire. Then the fire spreads into the city of Boston, and something like 100 building structures are damaged. Like, baseball game. Escalates and anger has this unbelievable power that has the ability to kind of uh, escalate quickly. We see it in sports, we see it in politics sometimes, we see it in all sorts of different things in our culture. This anger that we experience is unrighteous and it can be dangerous. People who are angry. Sometimes they act on it, and that's a very dangerous thing. Sometimes they internalize it. I can't remember who the famous actor is who said, when I get angry, I don't act on it, I just internalize it until I grow a tumor, and then I'm, you know, miserable. But there's another kind of danger that comes in anger when we ruminate in it, and we don't just let it out, but we allow it to corrupt our soul. The psychologist, Dr. Guy Winch in Psychology Today, talks about the damage of this kind of anger. Ruminations is what he calls it. He says, ruminations create a vicious cycle 
that can easily trap us. The urge to ruminate can feel truly addictive, such that we ruminate, the more we ruminate, the more we feel compelled to continue to do so. And I think this is a dangerous thing about anger, is that it's addictive. This feeling that we get, it gets inside of us. We ruminate in it. Says rumination can increase our likelihood of becoming depressed. It can prolong the duration of depressive episodes when we have them, and when we do have them, prolongs them. Rumination is associated with a great risk for alcohol abuse. We often will drink to take the edge off the consistent irritability or sadness that result from constant brooding. Rumination is also associated with a great, greater risk of eating disorders. Many of us begin using food to manage the distressing feelings our ruminations elicit. Rumination fosters negative thinking. Spending such a disproportional amount of time focusing on negative and distressing events can color our general perceptions such that we begin to view other aspects of our lives too negatively as well. Rumination fosters impaired problem solving. Ruminating increases our psychological and physiological stress response to such a degree that it can actually put us at greater risk for cardiovascular disease. There's a danger to anger. Anger leads to destructive behavior and it leads to destruction. When anger is unrighteous, it can spiral out of control. This is why James says human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So what do we do with it, though? We experience it. We feel it. There's a great story of uh, the Standard Oil Company back when it was led by John D. Rockefeller. One of his executives made this terrible decision, ended up costing the company $2 million, which was like, back in the day, a lot of money, kind of a lot of money now. You can imagine what that would be like to have a, a, a top executive make a decision that costs $2 million. So all the, kind of the, the head honchos of Standard Oil Company decided to not go into work the next day because they knew John D. Rockefeller was going to be there. No one wanted to come into contact with this guy, fearful of what he would do, how he would respond, how he would act. Except for a man named Edward T. Bedford. Edward T. Bedford had a meeting with Rockefeller the next day, and he was like, oh, no. But he decided to go in the meeting, figured he was going to suffer the wrath of Rockefeller as he considered this huge business decision that went awry, went bad. He goes into the meeting, opens the door, you know, walks into this room, this long table. Rockefeller's at the end of the table. And he's sitting, and he's writing with a pencil on a notepad. And he's, as he's writing... Uh, Tiffer walks in. He says, Hi, I'm here, here for a meeting. Rockefeller says, Oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. He says, Well, why don't you come down here and, and sit down? He says, Okay. He sits down and tells the story that Rockefeller, as he's writing, uh, shows him the notepad. And he doesn't give his name, but he says, This, Mr., we'll call him Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith made that bad decision cost us a lot of money. It's like, yeah, that's bad. He says, trying to think of what to do with this man. He's like, Rockefeller says, so I, I sat down and I just started writing all of my favorite characteristics about him. 
started listing them out. All the things that I like about this man. Then he started saying, I started to list out all the things that this man has contributed to our great company. So what I found is that there were three decisions that he's made over the last couple of years that have made us more money than what he lost us yesterday. And as I started writing all these things that I'm thankful, what I decided is, uh, it's a bad decision by this guy, but he's going to keep his job. And uh, pretty interesting activity. You think he's going to suffer the wrath of this, this great leader. And as he tells the story, he starts to talk about this practice that he experienced from Rockefeller's leadership, where he had every right to like lose his mind, lose control of the situation, go nuts. He says, I started to put this practice in place. Things that would make me angry. Some guy that would cut me off in traffic for me. But the things that people who are close to us when they make us angry, to start reminding ourselves of their good attributes. And all of a sudden, this unrighteous anger that I felt like I had the right to unload changes. We treat people not just with their circumstances, but we treat them with who they are. So we start to act on our values, not on our emotions. And unrighteous anger requires that. For us to sit back, to pause, to act upon our values, not just our emotions. The last anger is the other human anger, which I would call is righteous anger. Righteous anger. As we can see with the anger of God, there are some things in this world that should make us angry, that we should absolutely get fired up about. Pastor Bill Hybels calls this a holy discontent. And he talks about when it comes to the things that we should be truly angry about, the things that are develop this righteous anger is that all of the energy that comes from anger, that would, all of the boldness that would make you follow a man through Kirlin honking your horn at him, you start to filter into something productive. And we go back to the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark with this man with a shriveled hand where he looks out and he says, should I heal this man or not? And the religious leaders don't say anything, and he sees the hardness of their heart, and he becomes angry. Jesus, at this next moment, heals this man with a shriveled hand. It not only brings him healing, but it restores his body, and it restores his standing in the community. And this type of anger that is righteous, when, we, when we're angry about the right things, it's okay. We filter that energy into something that is restorative for this world. The anger of God, a righteous anger, a just anger, but it makes the world a better place. And as we consider our anger, our unrighteous anger and our righteous anger, when it's righteous, it can be the fuel to calling in our life. It can actually cause us to do great things in this world. Anger is a powerful thing. It's this divine emotion that we all experience. Jesus calls it a dangerous thing. 
Paul says we might as well rid ourselves of it. Because with it comes this incredible responsibility for self-control. Ephesians says, in your anger, do not sin. Never tells us, don't be angry. What do you do with your anger? What are the things that make you angry? Tim's going to come back up and uh, lead us through a time of prayer and communion. We have something today that might be a little bit different. We haven't done this in a while. But to my left, on your right, is a cross. And the cross for us um, is an important symbol. We talked about the last few weeks with Easter. I think it's important for a few reasons. As we talked the last few weeks, we talk about the cross. What happens on the cross is Jesus dies. Is that this broken world that we live in, the things that make us angry, the, the, the consequences of decisions that are destructive, Jesus takes the consequences of the decisions on the cross. And we talked about it in personalized ways, how when I trust the story of the gospel, when I trust Jesus, all of the things that I have done that anger God, that anger others, Jesus absorbs them. Jesus absorbs them on the cross. Part of this Christian story is that we experience the grace and compassion of God. But there's another aspect of the cross that I think we forget. That as followers of Jesus, not only do I trust the cross with my junk, but if I believe that God can forgive me, then I need to trust the cross to take the consequences of all the things that others have done to me as well. All the things that make me angry. This is the radical power of the cross. And maybe today you have anger in your life. Maybe it's something that has happened years ago to you and you're still carrying it around. And you are justified in your anger. You have every right to be angry. Maybe today, you need to stop letting it ruminate and take it to the cross. In your rose, there's black pieces of paper. And if you feel led, you can just write it out on that black piece of paper. And as we move to communion, come up and just pin it to the cross. Maybe you have things in your life right now that, that are causing anger and you're still going through it and it's still happening and you're still experiencing the destructive choices of other people and you're angry and you know that you're justified in your anger. We invite you to bring that to the cross as well. And it doesn't mean that it's all of a sudden going to be good. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be angry tomorrow. But you start the process of saying, Lord, I want to filter my anger through you, through your cross. I don't want my anger to be unrighteous. Would you guide me in my anger to allow it to contribute to making this world better? Don't let it ruminate inside of me. Don't let it cause me to do things that are rash and irresponsible.
when you feel ready, take that to the cross. And a couple things to just reflect on as we consider this emotion of anger. I must make decisions based on my values, not on my emotions. Lamentations reminds me that I am allowed to lament my anger to God. He can handle our venting. I need to trust the cross with my anger. And I will pursue ways to channel my anger into something redemptive. Take a few moments if you want to write. Let me pray, and then we'll move to communion. For us, communion is a sacred act. For us, we practice open communion here. We say if you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited to the table. Communion represents the story of the cross, that God loved us so much. They sent Jesus into the world. But Jesus goes to the cross. All the things that cause anger in this world are absorbed with his death. We have bread that represents the body of Christ that hangs on the cross as a reminder. And when we eat it, we do it in remembrance of this great act of God. We take juice that represents this blood that was shed and poured out on the cross. We believe that it cleanses us of our brokenness starts to put us back together. We're invited to this moment where we come to the table to remember what God does. And then we declare it. As you come to the cross today, as you come to the table, we invite you to lay your anger at the cross of the table and trust God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for a reminder even, Lord, that you get angry. To be reminded that you see us. Lord, that you know the dark things that take place. You see the unjust things that happen in our world and you are moved to action. Lord, as we tap into this powerful force of rage and anger, Lord, we ask that you would allow us to use our anger for good. That we wouldn't miss the mark. That you would give us self-control. That our anger would be filtered into calling and redemptive work. Where there's corruption, Lord, we'd bring about truth. Where there's death, we'd bring about life. Where there's pain, we'd bring about healing. So be with us today, Lord. Stir in our hearts. Reveal to us what needs to be revealed. Meet us here. In your son's name we pray.